Dear Molly Bragan, is your hair still soft and long? Do you still laugh at silly things and do you sing my favorite song? Well, these words might shock you, this letter's overdue. I know I left without a word, but I had to see it through. And these words might shock you, this letter's overdue. Block outside the fire so dim And my plans they've fallen through I've been a vagabond Hello everyone to the uh, even more autism power hour uh, the, the autism more, more powerful hour uh, No, this is just a conversation between me and Andy There's no gimmicks, no bells or whistles uh, This is just a free-flowing conversation with me and my old friend Andy about stuff we're interested in, stuff we've been doing recently. We're just going to kind of let the conversation go where it goes. What's up, guys? It's Ty here. Just figured I'd put my two cents in and kind of tell you what's going on this episode. So I was sleeping off a hangover during the recording of this episode, uh, and so they decided to do a conversation without me. But I'm editing this, and fundamentally, they can't stop me from doing anything. So much like the famous Nabokov novel Pale Fire, much of the story of this episode will actually be found in annotations from the editor. So let's buckle in for a good one, folks. So Yeah, it's like it's like that 170s movie that Wallace Shawn was in. Yeah. Um, I don't I, remember the name. But yeah, what was it? What was it? It was like, it was Vanya, on, so- 40, Vanya on 42nd Street? Was that it? No, I think it was Maybe. Princess Bride. It was definitely Princess Bride. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, yeah, one. Princess Bride. Okay. The movie also definitely came out in the seventies. Yeah. No. Okay. No. No. It was. Uh. It was that Woody Allen movie that just came out with, with Wallace Shawn. What's it called? Oh, Rifkin's damn. Festival. He's yeah. In that. Yeah. He's in. <laughs> that's so funny that he's like a Hollywood communist and also a Woody Allen guy. That's a very cool combo to be. Um. So Andy, what have you been reading recently since um? You recently mentioned you were in a book club. I don't think I included it in the episode itself because I think it was before we were recording with Craig. He actually mentioned this during the recording of the last one. Uh, like as we were trying to explain what was going on to our guest, he just like came out and was like, hey, by the way, what have you been reading? As if it was just like a normal thing to throw into the middle of the upkeep of an episode. Um, and then when I told him what I was reading, he was like, that's cool. That's cool. I'm reading some Viking bullshit and can proceed to talk about the Viking bullshit, which you're about to hear about. And I was I was shocked and taken aback. But, uh, you yes. know, tell me uh, what you have been reading. Well, the main thing we've been reading over the past, uh, I think, two or three sessions uh, is we have been reading Njal's Saga, uh, which is a 13th century adaptation of essentially how a bunch of Vikings founded the original Icelandic state. Mm. Uh, We're not that far in. We're only about 60-ish chapters in. And the thing is, each of the chapters are like two or three pages, so there's like 300 chapters in this book. Ah, damn, did James Patterson write this shit? No, I'm playing. Definitely. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's it's fun to read something. It, It is almost biblical in that, like, each chapter is full of, like, every third chapter is opening with, there was this guy, and he was the son of son and sons, and he, you know, and these are his children, and his wife, and, like, in, like, there's so many different introductions and little, little things. Um, it, it feels in a way that, like, something written a thousand, almost a thousand years ago can feel, in that it is very weighty. It has, like, this this heavy, serious text, even when it is just two guys talking about maybe getting employment. Even when, like, you can tell from the text itself that, like, oh, this is just, like, not something important. Um, but it is, it is, it is very, it, it, it is, because it is, it is that old, and I'm reading the, uh, the, the Penguin Classics translation, that was, uh, the one that was, you know, that was posted in the server, and it's, it's probably the best way to read it if you're, you know, an English speaker in 2023. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 cool reading about Vikings. I kind of want to watch The Northman now since I haven't seen that. Uh, the Northman was a movie that came out right at the beginning of my exploration of uh, bisexuality. And 
I still can't go back and watch it because I know to this day my legs would just automatically snap over my head in like a, you know, a, a sexual missionary position as if I was like a dead bug. My body was just like curling on itself naturally. But it's a very good movie. Uh, Skarsgård's very hot now. Uh, I also, I looked at Njal's saga on Wikipedia and it has the... <laughs> It has the sentence, it is often considered the peak of the saga tradition, which is one of the hardest sentences I've ever read. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. The, you know that shit goes crazy if it's the peak of the saga, the saga tradition. Um, no, that sounds cool. I am not as huge of a, a Viking head as you are, but that does sound cool. It would probably remind me of reading. Actually, actually, I'm a Bears fan. Oh yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> but um, no, this sounds interesting. I, I again, uh, reading like texts that old, you do have to make the mental adjustment for how back then so much of storytelling was just people listing names and family trees, and then just going like, "Yeah, no, I haven't been keeping a chart, but it's like, man, this is this is getting real." Com- I hope there's like a. Like an archive in the back where it's like, here's here's people's family trees that you can like skim through. I like that a lot. Uh, that sounds very, very cool. No, it doesn't. It sounds like homework. I have been reading, and I've talked about this on the podcast before because I put the book down. Um, real life got in the way at the time. But uh, it's like been two years now, honestly, and I picked it back up. And the book is called Hype and Glory, and it is a book by William Goldman. William Goldman is one of the most famous screenwriters of all time. He wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He wrote uh, All the President's Men, The Princess Bride, as we you know mentioned before. He's this pretty towering figure in the field. Uh, the fact that he has that many famous screenplays to his name is kind of you know kind of shocking because you look at old screenwriters or whatever, like even the really famous and popular ones. So many of them. You look at all the screenplays they wrote, and there will usually only be, like, two or three that you recognize, and then a bunch of, like, dog shit that they had wanted no part with. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a very unforgiving profession, especially during I feel like the Hollywood machine era. Obviously, even today, writers are still very clearly the second fiddle to directors in terms of, like, marketing and cultural, you know, sense. Yeah. Where, like... I feel like you talk to anyone, they, they can name, like, at least three or five, like, four more directors on average than they could even, like, for every one writer. But, like, back then especially, I feel like it was it had to be worse, because, like, you know, directors were cut. Co- Hold on, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll be right back. You, you keep... <laughs> Andy! Andy, get over here! Oh, man. I don't know if Ty is going to be editing this. She is. <laughs> that is so funny. I don't know if you can hear that on the recording, but I just heard a female voice screaming, Andy! I'm sorry about that. My mom needed me to find help her call. Uh, my mom needed me to call her phone for her so she could find it. Okay. Yeah, so anyway, just resume your thought. Resume your thought. Directors were kind of like, even back in the day, there were like, big directors, like, had to fight harder to get that level of pop cultural, like, respect and, you know, admiration. So being a writer back then must have been even harder is what I was... Okay, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm looking at, like, Dalton Trumbo, for example, and, um, obviously the Blacklist didn't help his career. Uh, Actually, the Blacklist was made by John Bokenkamp, not this old Hollywood fuck that they're talking about. Continue. But you look at the films he's written that really have like stood the test of time it's like 30 seconds over tokyo gun crazy roman holiday and spartacus i i could be like overlooking something but you know here's one of the most famous fucking screenwriters in history and uh you know he's written yeah, like, a lot like but who wrote 10 commandments just type type like don't look it up but, but i mean god did they got right yeah that's true he did <laughs> Came down to Sesame to Mills and was like, I need you to make this weighty and feel over four hours. You know, there's something actually really interesting about old Hollywood to me. How many of the big names were like out and proud Republicans? 
Like, yeah. you know, people like Mel Gibson, Mark Wahlberg or whatever, like there's this big stink of made how there's only a few conservatives left in Hollywood now. But you compare it to back then and it's frankly insane how much more Republicans there were in the entertainment industry. California only started really like California going blue was a more recent thing like the most recent president of the united states elected from california was ronald reagan especially back then in the old west you know in frontier days yeah yeah uh, the old west of 1944 yeah the old west of of 1952 hey back when they had cowboys prowling around hey hey we we're farther from them than they were from the old west that is true um but no i mean cecil b demille obviously huge fucking republican um you know john wayne is the obvious one i also do like John Wayne's such a fat piece of shit such a fucking just grotesque vile human being like i have a lot of patience for old hollywood actors and directors having weird contradictory politics like you know, John Ford, for example, uh, being far right, but also supporting the IRA. They're like, you know, even then, I'm not really bothered by the fact that Jimmy Stewart was like a Republican Vietnam War supporter. But John Wayne was just so vicious and hateful and evil and such a fucking phony in the Ronald Reagan regard where he thought he was like a cowboy. Like he thought he was actually the roles he played on the screen. And I'm not going to dismiss, like, he is one of the greatest actors of all time, without question. Yeah, no. Like, there's really no contest. And He's not, actually. He was just, like, one of the five guys that they made before people learned how to act. He just knew how to talk on camera. And that was, like, back when there were 20 actors, that was enough to get you into the, the top echelon. Echelon. I don't know. What, what, however you say it. There have been, like, attempts to kind of, like, remove his name from, like, exhibits. Like, in 2019, there was a call to remove him from USC's exhibit. And I just don't agree with that because he's such an important part of film history. But at the same time, like, what a vile fucking toad of a man. Yeah, he's he's kind of got the Lovecraft thing going for him in that the other racists are around him are like, could you tone it down a bit? Yeah, or could you? <laughs> Hedna Hopper was also one of the one of those people, um, the gossip columnist. I don't think this is the show to be making fun of extremely racist women. Let's all back off and take a second. I remember, like other fucking Hollywood people would call her a Nazi to her, <laughs> and she would like start crying whenever they called her a Nazi. But she and uh, she and John Wayne were like some of the most ardent supporters of the blacklist. But no, it, it's it's crazy. Like Barbara Stanwyck, for example. There's a there's a, you know a classic Republican. Um, I mean, Jimmy Stewart, we've talked about. Cary Grant was very on the down low Republican, which is very funny which to is me. Which is funny. Because yeah, he's no, fucking so gay. cabin ass Republican. Yeah, no, just getting dicked down by Randolph Scott and just being like, uh, uh, well, I, uh, I sure do think that we, uh, we've got to vote for Gerald Ford. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a fine and dandy president. Just yeah, no, like, I, I, I Either way you know he was gay was, like, Chevy Chase called him, like, gay in, like, an, an open mic or something, and he sued Chevy Chase for it. <laughs> That's God how you damn. know he was gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, but... Uh, didn't you also have to, like... Because I think you brought it up before. Don't you have a fucking, like, deep hatred for Mickey Rooney? Uh, yeah, I do like, have well, a deep hatred for Mickey Rooney. Um... He was okay. Here's the thing, though. He is like he was a Democrat. He was like kind of an old school boomer Democrat. Democrat, where he's like, I just love my country and I love the troops. But my hatred for him came. I worked a job in L.A. Uh, internship, and it was actually like a really fantastic internship that I, I'm really happy I did. But my job description was I went through old recordings and interviews with all of these, you know hollywood celebrities and people and i would more or less like transcribe them take them down and uh just just sort through them and see if any of it's like too problematic to share share with the public or whatever and um the mickey rooney ones i felt like i was having a stroke listening to them because by that point he was like late 80s early 90s like really really old and every time he spoke it was like this 
he was always like, America, America is a great country. It's, it's great. And I think the troops, you know, we, we've just got to love and support them. So why don't, why don't we give us all, give us all a hand? Just that for like an hour at a time. Just these fucking Grandpa Simpson-ass stories. That's just the political version of what this show has been for the past three years. I don't think we're in any position to be taking shots at them. He lived to be 96 and died in 2014. That's an old fucker. Yeah, no, he was so fucking goddamn old. And even like, even the Hollywood Democrats at the time, like there weren't a lot who were great generally like kirk douglas you know he was a longtime democrat also like a viciously hardcore zionist and a rapist but he lived to be 103 which is you know pretty pimp on his part but yeah and then there's like edward g robinson for example who on the one hand very early civil rights supporter like such an ardent anti-segregation fighter that he got like shouted out by the NAACP like he got the you all right white boy (laughs) not of approval which is funny when it's fucking Edward G. Robinson like the man who is like the dictionary definition of fucking nebbish by the way this is a fun fact I didn't know if there actually was a dictionary definition of nebbish because that seemed like a word that like a guy with glasses that are too big just came up with one day but actually do you know it's Yiddish in origin I never would have guessed that uh first known usage was 1907 never say the show doesn't teach you anything yeah the most corny ass white boy yeah no at the same time like he he kind of sold out a bunch of people during the um uh Hollywood blacklist for example so it's a very uh I don't know. It's obviously I'm making the bold revelation that a bunch of white people in the 1940s and 50s didn't have good politics. But um, no, it, it, I was just it's again like there was a huge contingency like um, uh, it was like Hollywood for Dewey or whatever or like directors for Dewey or whatever. And it was like a huge fucking group of people, including Howard Hawks. They were talking about Dewey Cox and all the directors were for him because that movie is so funny. Seriously, if you haven't watched that movie in a while, go back and it's one of the fucking funniest movies ever made. Genuinely. So I, it just, it takes me aback now that LA is now the like liberal hive mind of the country. Just very funny in hindsight to reflect upon. But anyways, this long digression came from me talking about hope and glory or hype and glory. And yeah, no, I was about to say, I heard people were like, weren't we talking about a book earlier? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that... Hype and Glory uh, was William Goldman. I think in the same year, he judged Cannes Film Festival and the Miss America pageant. Call that the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, like can't like tits, like like boobs, like can't you, you get it? Call it the Melons Film Festival. Ha cha cha. Now I haven't gotten to the Miss America pageant stuff yet. Regrettably, I'm sure that is going to be a treat. To see this very cranky old screenwriter talking about like the the bodacious babes he saw at the Miss America pageant and how their curvature was all off or whatever. But the canned stuff is great because it's this very candid and bitter and judgy look at how the Cannes Film Festival works and how much of a fucking slog it is for the judges. You have to see like 36 films in a week. You have to get up at six in the morning, watch five a day, and they're all these slow fucking art films you are going to conk out during. You know what? That's probably why a modern fucking Disney blockbuster showing up there gets rave reviews at Cannes, because it's like, oh, thank God, different. Yeah, I mean, that's probably why uh, Ruben Ostland, the filmmaker who made Force Majeure, The Square, Triangle of Sadness, that's probably why he's done so well there, because... His movies are like them or hate them. They're funny. And when you're surrounded by like four hour movies that genuinely sound like a TikToker making up a fake movie, like it's a black and white movie from Romania about, you know, banana farmers or whatever. That is so much of what they show at Cannes. Not even a movie snob. I'm fairly certain I've heard Spencer talk about this exact movie at least twice. That is so much of what they show. It's all this stuffy European formalism. And so much of it has to feel like you're drinking castor oil for nine hours a day. It's also funny, too, that they've tried showing 
blockbusters at Cannes Film Festival and they still get bad reviews. Like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, so fucking bad that it can't stand out amongst an onslaught of, you know, middle-brow Euro shit. But I digress. It is a very funny read. He talks like a tough guy in the books. Like he's got these very terse sentences. He he really does think he's like William Friedkin or whatever. But I I really enjoy it. I really enjoy like the inside machinations and I enjoy his very cranky mindset and how much he talks about show business sucking, like how Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know that movie, Andy. Oh yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Did you know that uh, Robert Redford's role was actually supposed to be played by Steve McQueen? The guy from Cars, like the red guy who says Kachow. And he was like, That set. would be a very different role. It was I like mean- locked in. And it fell apart because their agents were had a fight over who got top billing. And they couldn't work uh-huh. anything out. And so McQueen bailed on the project. It would be a very different movie. And I'm glad it was Redford instead of... Yeah, no. Redford... <laughs> Redford is the heart and soul of that fucking movie. And also, I'm not a huge Steve McQueen fan, generally, but I, uh... I remember liking The Great Escape. I actually haven't seen The Great Escape. I've seen uh, Bullet, and I wasn't really impressed by him there, but... You'd probably like The Great Escape. I don't think you'd love it, but I think it'd it'd be worth it, even if it is fucking, like, four hours long. Speaking of uh, both Friedkin and The Great Escape um, and Bullet, I really, really love how in the 60s and 70s there were so many car chase movies where what they did was just the most dangerous thing in the world (laughs) like bullet for example you watch that scene and it's like one of the best chase scenes ever filmed but it gets even better when you learn they were actually doing like 120 on the fucking freeways in la like they were driving really dangerously i thought what, what i thought you were imagining is that they fucking like dress the cameraman up like in like matadors and put the camera out there with a red cape next to it and just fucking they might as well have because <laughs> yeah like french connection too like that can't be with the movies french connection too like they couldn't even think of a different country fucking german connection uh english connection fucking armenian connection i got it i fucking i have a handle get me in charge of naming shit he just drove like he he just had fucking gene hackman driving at really dangerous speeds through fucking new york which is this brutal city to drive through and And you know they didn't fucking like rent off those roads there were no safety precautions like none whatsoever and it's good we have safety precautions now like movies even the great ones are not worth dying for but we did lose something back when insane directors were just like all right, so here you're going to drive 150 down the streets of Boston. You're not going to have a stunt driver. You're just going to have to do this. And I'm going to be there in the car with a, you filming. Is there a worse city in America to do that, like, fucking daredevil driving shit? In, in Boston? In Boston? No. Boston drivers... Boston Road's nightmare? I mean, Boston has, like, one of the worst layouts of any city I've ever seen. Horribly designed. It's... I mean, this might literally be the case, but it just does genuinely feel like the dirt roads that they had in the 1700s. They just took the exact yeah, layout like, and turned them into actual roads. Boston, even more so than like New York and Philadelphia, is one of the few like American cities that's like almost medieval, like a European city problem. Just yeah, these roads were not made for cars, but we still have them. Yeah, well, Boston. Everyone there drives like a maniac. I'm not even like doubting this. I just want to be very clear uh, for those of our fans who live just like 20 minutes from Andy. Every single major metropolitan area says that their drivers are the worst. Uh, We say that Philly all the time. I've almost gotten killed multiple times on my bike by drivers. Don't listen to Spencer when he says this. I'm sure they're bad, but... I mean, come on. This is like this is like saying like, "Damn, my local corner store is the best." It's not. Everyone says that. I've seen people like sprint in front of and cut off ambulances in that city. It is no man's land. Fucking driving there. I remember when I got in a lift out of Boston Logan to visit my friends recently. The lift driver immediately made two of the most dangerous merges I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, 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 I was yeah. like, I'm going to die in this car. I'm giving you a 25% tip if I survive. Yeah, driving by crazy taxi rules. Oh, yeah, no, it's it's complete fucking 
crazy taxi rules over there. It's it's unreal. Uh, so before we recorded this, Andy, we were talking about some movies. Uh, what specific ones did you want to talk about for this this little hour? I don't know. Uh, you rewatched Throne of Blood. We can talk about that. So um, we did talk about Throne of Blood. Now look, Kurosawa. There's no question, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Like I'm going to talk like Stephen A. Smith for a second here. Like you know, I respect Kurosawa. Okay, you know I take the Kurosawa question seriously, but. I am only mildly a fan of Throne of Blood. I think that is a solid three and a half star movie that I think gets a little overhyped because of the novelty of here is the bare bones outline of Shakespeare without the poetry. And what we did here, which is admittedly brilliant, we translated the essence of shakespeare but not the language because you can't translate shakespeare really into other languages and still get like the force of his wordplay across at the same time you do kind of lose something there and there's just a disconnect for me when you watch throne of blood just something doesn't feel quite right it feels a little overwrought almost like at once it's too weighty and serious but also, it feels like some of the soul of the play is like kind of chopped out. I don't know. I would have to see it like two more times to get a handle on my feelings. But I do really like it. I need to. I need to make it clear. I do really, really I, like it. I, I will at least say Macbeth is probably the smartest Shakespeare play to like take that approach for because it's already like not one of the wittier ones. You know, people don't like. I kind of see where he's coming from. I think like a lot of the comedies have more of the wordplay. You could maybe make the case for Hamlet or whatever, uh, maybe we are a little bit, I don't know. But I also think that it's like, it, it's incorrect to say that just because it doesn't have a lot of like bon mots or whatever, like it's somehow easier to translate uh, the language in that one to a uh, different language. Like it's not, Macbeth has a fucking, this is very serious. I don't know why this is serious, but like Macbeth does have like a very strong sense of diction. Like the, the choices that he makes linguistically are like, as unique to English, if not more, than than some of the wittier wordplay related ones, and I don't I don't think that's a fair characterization of Macbeth. It's about a crazy woman and her husband doing incredibly stupid violence. So throwing that into uh, the the aesthetic and tropes of feudal Japanese samurai movie works pretty well for that, especially when you know Mafune Toshiro Mafune is giving the performance of his life. Yeah. Uh, speaking once again, speaking of actors doing stupid shit that they should not be, or directors doing stupid the, shit. The arrows. The arrows. That is. So, for those of you who don't know, the ending of the Throne end of Blood. Of, so, if you haven't seen Throne of Blood, the I mean, you, ending of Macbeth, Macbeth, really famous. You know, Macduff comes, no man of woman born, and slaughters. Uh, you know, Macbeth. And Macduff becomes the new king. There's no, like, there's barely a Macduff equivalent in Throne of Blood. He's, like, almost not entirely not in the movie. And um, he's more of a satellite character. And that part of the prophecy is completely cut. So what happens, and I think this is better than what Shakespeare did, is that when the trees descending upon Burnham Wood, or Burnham Wood descending upon the fortress, in this adaptation called The Spider's Web Forest, which is much harder than Burnham would. The archers in Mifune's army turn on him and just start shooting him. Kurosawa. And it's this, this amazing shot where Mifune is up on a balcony giving like this rousing speech about how he's going to fight to the bitter end and we're going to win. And, uh, and then you just cut to like the crowd shot of them just standing and going, no. And they don't they say just no. Start, they just stand silent in the fall. visually just like... And then they just start shooting him. Yeah. And, and, they, and they used live arrows. They used arrows. Yeah. They, they, they did not... They were not quite in so insane. Like, the arrows had needles uh, at the top of them to make them less fatal if one of them and, went wrong. And, and Mifune is waving wildly to try and convey to the archers, Don't shoot me! Shoot over there! He but also the had... Sound- he also had protective gear on because a couple of arrows do hit him, but they don't like puncture him or anything. Yeah, but it is just like, it's just like, you can't do that. You can't shoot real arrows at a guy 
But man, that movie would be a lot worse if you didn't shoot real arrows at him. The terror in his face. Again, like Mifune, one of the most expressive actors in history. The terror in his face is so fucking real in that shot. Like you can see just how scared shitless he is to just get volleyed and shot in the face by one of those arrows. Like it's 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 horrifying yeah. and it's so thrilling to watch. It's crazy how no one ever dies in the good movies though. I mean what? We're still we're still making movies where people die, but now they're like the fucking they're the crow. You know, I feel like just morally, the universe knows if your movie's going to be good or not. And uh, it decides whether or not people die on the set uh, based on that. So like they knew The Crow was going to suck. So they're like, fucking later, Brendan Lee. But they knew all those fucking movies where guys are running 200 miles an hour in cars were going to be great. So they're just like, fucking, yeah, when they go through. That's all I'm saying. I think there's a, I think there's a karmic element to it. No, like I said, it, it's really good. And there's a lot of standout sequences. The uh, scene where, uh, you know, the Macbeth equivalent executes one of his underlings for failing to kill Macduff in Throne of Blood and it's shot in this like perfectly symmetrical center shot like that that shot has stuck with me for fucking years and there's some great passages too where they just have like uh you know Macbeth and Banquo just wandering around in the fog like wordless for four minutes there's so much good stuff in the movie there's it's just so much good fog in that movie Oh yeah, no. The fog machine budget on that movie must have been crazy. It is it is the best fog has ever looked in black and white yeah. in that movie. It doesn't really reach the same heights as Kurosawa's other movies for me, like Seven Samurai, that's obviously a classic, and High and Low, a movie that I am overjoyed is like now becoming the canonical Kurosawa movie. Like for so long, Seven Samurai was the canonical one, and it arguably deserves it more, but High and Low basically becoming the critically considered second best instead of Ikaru makes my heart like so happy. I need to see Seven Samurai. Well, do you have a favorite uh, Shakespeare adaptation? Uh, I'm, it's, it's so weird because I am kind of picky with Shakespeare adaptations. I'm like, that's fair. I love reading Shakespeare. And when it's performed live on stage, I like it. I, it, it's again, I've talked about this before, but like reading Shakespeare, I like that more than seeing the words performed because, you know, my bullshit auditory processing disorders and just my general being stupid as hell. I like to like read it slowly and be able to get a handle on like how every single line has like four different puns and dick jokes in it. Uh, it's very Reddit uh, in hindsight, but an adaptation that is written that I liked uh, back in like high school was uh, Ryan North's To Be or Not To Be, the guy who does all the shitty like dinosaur comics that are ripping off XKCD. Uh, it's actually very, it's like a choose your own adventure book. And it's, again, it's like very kind of like uh, uh, humor that you like as a precocious kid in middle school. But I, I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was very fun. Uh, he did a good job with it. Also, they came up with an app that goes along with it, and that was very fun to to play along with. Uh, fucking junior year of high school, that was very big for me. So I am kind of picky about it. Honestly, I think Rand might be it. The other Kurosawa one, I remember liking that more than Throne of Blood. Which one is that? Which That's King Lear. That it's King Lear. Ah, okay. But. I I don't know. You're uh that's really that's really difficult for me to answer honestly. I'm not sure Wells if I had have a bunch of good ones. I um, need to see the Wells ones. I think it'll probably be Chimes at Midnight when I see that one. A lot like everyone I know who's seen that movie like talks that up and insanely high. Yeah. But we were also talking about Howard Hawks. I won't we won't dwell on that too much because we, we already did an episode on that. Yeah. We've done a we've discussed Howard Hawks quite a lot, both with Esther and with Angie. But, you know, I it's worth repeating. One of the greatest, one of the absolute best to ever make movies. So many hits. A weak Howard Hawks movie is like a four star movie. So Yeah, no. I, I really do I, I really do think the French did us all a favor in elevating him to the role of like a serious artist because so many of his movies are just so goofy and dumb and silly. And, you know, a lot of the French critics from the 50s, like Godard and Rivette, played a huge role in saying, like, and Andrew Saris, too. They were all like, no, this guy who makes silly commercial movies, he is a serious artist. This guy who made a movie called Monkey Business which has Cary Grant acting, basically age regressing for the plot. I'm not 
not saying the French have never made Godard, but I do think it's telling that like half the shit they consider to be very great is either Godard or it's just like a fucking guy falling down and his, his he's like wearing big pants or whatever. Like I don't think I don't think we should really be taking their advice on what great art is. This guy is a real artist, and I, I think we were all done in immense favor by having him be elevated as you know the uh, what the ideal of Hollywood artistry looks like. Andy, you have you seen anything not for the podcast recently? <laughs> Past I mean, two months, three months. I, let me look at Letterboxd. A hundred months. It's been. I've been. I know I've seen something this year, but it's. It's. I have not. I have, <laughs> we can work with this year. I. I, re- I remember when you were a loyal uh, Marvel guy, and then we had that bullied out of you. After well, also Endgame. seeing. Yeah. Well, Endgame also just like. The more I think about that, the more I'm like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm done. Uh, one of the more embarrassing things about me is that when Endgame came out, I saw it in the theater with all of my nerd-ass college friends, and uh, I, I, I did. I did cry during the funeral scene uh, for the, you know, made-up uh, superhero guy. Uh, it's because I like Tropic Thunder so much, though, is is the excuse I'm going for. I mean, it like it's very, it's almost like a perfect tale of hubris that like everything they've made since Endgame, except for the Spider-Man stuff, has just not gone over well at all. Like, it's just completely regressed, and the TV stuff isn't working out at all, and their reviews are tanking, audience interest is dropping off, and it it really does feel like a long-waiting vindication, because a very formative memory for me in high school was I watched, like, all of the Marvel movies to catch up in order for Guardians of the Galaxy 2 which, huge disappointment. We've already talked about. Yeah, I believe you said it multiple times, but people only like that movie because Gen X critics no, that was I think that was Ty. I think that was Ty. No, I'm pretty sure that was you. I mean, uh, I... Ty, I think, defends Guardians, too. I do. It's solid. At least as far as those movies go, it's like, it's one of the better out of, like, that dismal pack of stuff. Uh, it's it's fun. The Guardians was always the more fun one. Kurt Russell was very fun in that movie. He He did a good performance. Uh, the effects suck, obviously, but I don't know. It was cute. It was a good one. It might have been Cole then. I don't know. I I, I don't I don't recall. I swear it was that. you. Okay, well maybe it was me, and maybe I'm an unspoken genius, and everything I say has always been right. But I I just remember watching those in quick succession, and even in high school, I could tell that those movies were just bland and indistinct, and not a single one worked for me. Uh, formative high school memory involving the Marvel movies for me was uh, I saw Ant-Man, it came out, what, like 2015, so it's probably a good junior in high school, and uh, we went to, like, the movie theater in my hometown with, like, these very comfortable seats, it was, like, a whole group of us, and there was this very, very hot girl who came with us who normally did not hang out with us too, too much, and we literally, like, were cuddling on the chair the whole time, and I was, like, in, like, if it were me now, I would have, like, known, like, oh, you gotta, like, fucking riz to 200%, uh, but because she was in like a long distance relationship with some guy she didn't like. So, and I thought you had to respect that. And it turns out uh, you learn once you grow up that no, people love cheating on their partners. And if you can help them do that, it's actually very cool. So, future message sent back to the past. If anyone can get in contact with 17 year old me, just tell her cheating is cool. So, you're not wrong, probably, but I also haven't seen an MCU movie since Endgame. So, I, I'm like, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I also haven't, like, done the, okay, how much do I actually like or dislike these movies in modern times, Mm. contextual to the rest of my rating scale? I need to, I need to ask you, since we'll, we'll table a prequels discussion for a later time, but, like, what is your overall thoughts on the sequels, since the sequels are, like, you know, nerd nerd I I deliberately have not seen... Rise of Skywalker because uh, I I don't want to fucking do that. It's I don't unreal like that. how bad it is. It's like it's genuinely shocking, and yeah, the fact is it's so bad. Like I don't really blame J.J. Abrams for it. Like it no, was- no, you can't blame like as much as it, you want to blame everyone involved. It's like no, this was a machine that made this movie. This yeah. was not a human. This I mean, was a corporate entity. It was Kathleen Kennedy's fault, like, at the end of the day. Like, it's her yeah. fault for that movie being bad. Like, The Force well, Awakens... it was their fault for being like, yeah, we're gonna give each Star Wars movie in our trilogy to a different director. Gee, I wonder why that didn't fucking work out. Well, it, was, it was weird, though, because, like, that can work. Like, the original trilogy wasn't really planned that well. But, like, it, what made it a problem was that, like, each successive one like retconned the previous one 
And they, they kept having to like backtrack and basically soft reboot every single movie. But I, I will I will lay my case down pretty Yeah, early. basically the thing about Disney post endgame is that they're base they're starting like phase four and five of the Marvel Cinematic Universe are basically Marvel making all of the same mistakes that Star Wars made five years ago. Yeah. With with the with the sequels, I did rewatch Force Awakens recently for uh, Get Cynical, and it I was shocked. It's really bad. Like I think it gets kind of written off or like kind of given a pass because you know oh it's you know it's not as like horribly divisive as the Last Jedi, and it wasn't made by like four robots like uh, you, you Rise of Skywalker. What, you know but what's it's the one thing that I do have for Rise of Skywalker that's like man is that I will argue that is the movie in the sequel trilogy that makes arguably the best use of John Boyega, and I really like John Boyega as an actor from other stuff from Star Wars, so it's it's a shame that, like, man, everyone was wasted, but also kind of you. Boyega, yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. Like, he was the only one who had, like, a new idea added to the script. Like, here we have a random stormtrooper who breaks loose and decides to fight for good. And then they just don't know what to do with him ever. Like, not even Last Jedi, which I, like, will mount a very mild defense for as, like, a three-star movie. I will defend a lot of things in that movie, even if I do not like it overall. I will I will yeah. say that, like, no, it definitely is, at worst, the second best Disney Star Wars film. Like, yeah. If <laughs> it's just, it's like, they didn't know what to do with him. And someone else, like, put this in uh, in context for me that really clarified it. Uh, the Last Jedi is kind of just them trying to do a Battlestar Galactica episode in the Star Wars universe, which is just yeah, like, that just doesn't work because the Star Wars universe is this very mythic, you know, light and dark classic tale where like the rebooted Battlestar Galactica is one of the most just morally gray and ambiguous and frustrating sci-fi stories ever made. And, and, and I will also say the worst thing that happened to The Last Jedi as a movie is that Ryan Johnson did not get to make the sequel to that because I feel like the way he left it off left kind of a bad taste not only from that but knowing that it's like well another guy's not going to be able to follow this up in a satisfying way No, maybe yeah. he could end it but like yeah well, you know what I will it, say thinking it, about prequels I'm sorry I just wanted to interject there is a Battlestar Galactica episode and it's considered the best episode of the show called 33 and it's the first episode of the series proper. And the premise of the episode is that the humans, they're this ragtag fleet. And every 33 minutes, the Cylon fleet jumps in and they have to jump away from them. And everyone is tired and exhausted and everyone's going through sleep deprivation. And it ends with them having to blow up a civilian passenger jet with a thousand people inside in order to stop it. That's like the level of what it was doing back then last jedi is trying to do the same thing but it can't like get its hands that dirty because it's a star wars movie i will also say the more i think about it the more i go man solo's a fucking piece of shit what were they doing like <laughs> well like, man, you're wrong you're wrong. I... you're wrong because that movie did not come out that movie doesn't exist <laughs> that's true that movie was... Has the guy who played Han Solo in that movie been in another movie? He was really funny in Hail Caesar, which I saw oh, before cool. Solo. Hail Caesar is a really good movie, and he's hilarious in that. It's not one of the Coen's best. No, I'm playing. Remember that bit? That was a very funny bit from a couple episodes ago. Uh, I feel very bad because I have nothing to say during this whole Star Wars conversation. I never watched any of those movies. And I don't give a fuck. But I hope you've been having fun listening to them talk about it. it. It makes an odd choice for him as Han Solo because in Hail Caesar, he plays a charming doofus. And in this one, he has to play like the embodiment of fucking 70s cool, which he can't do. I don't know. I remember I actually kind of liked Solo until like the fifth act of that movie where Darth Maul showed up again. And I remember is like, I had a multi-phase reaction to that where it's like, ah, I watched the, the superfluous material. I know that Darth Wow and why Darth Maul survived, uh, fucking, uh, Phantom Menace. Ha. And then I went and realized, wait, they also already killed him off in Disney canon. So they're not, like, building towards anything with Darth Maul. He's just there for to be there yeah. as an ad for those cartoons. I will say, if I revisited it, it would be a funny opinion of mine, and it might 
actually be my legitimate opinion that Solo is my favorite Disney Star Wars movie. Like, that could actually be my honest-to-God opinion, which would be... That would be perfect. I think that... I I think if the most artistically defensible endeavor in the Star Wars movie was the Ron Howard, Han Solo, Solo story that basically killed the franchise. It's very funny to, like, wish-cast opinions that you could hold. Like, you realize you can just hold them, right? Like, nothing's stopping you. You're... You're you. You can just like put that into practice if you so desire. It'd well, be an all you take. It would be an all you take for sure. Because that's the thing about Solo is that like the Star Wars, like Last Jedi, regardless of how you feel about it, what needed like you wanted to have like a safe, comfy follow up movie that's like a general crowd pleaser and can like reassure audiences and. The two two of the worst movies in the franchise following it up was not what people wanted. Yeah, uh, the- I. So so, going off of sci-fi stuff, you've been watching nineties Battlestar go, or was it early two thousands? Oh, no, it's it's one of the most quintessential Bush era texts that there is, and it's also one of the best sci-fi shows ever because it had one foot in this very like hard sci-fi like very process oriented like here's the episode where we have to do resource management here's the episode where we have to weigh abortion as like a human right in the midst of an extinction crisis here's how we have to find food now that we're traveling through space and then on the other hand it just has all this religious mysticism about like the Jungian collective unconscious and you know, these very like almost Gnostic ideas about God and the whole thing is built to like this prophecy that involves eternal recurrence and the latter half made nerds, especially during the Bush years, so fucking mad. And that shit rocks. That shit rocks so much and it has made the show age so well. But what were you about to say about sci-fi? Oh, I was going to recommend my... uh Turn of the Millennium uh, sci-fi, long-running sci-fi series, which is uh, Deep Space Nine kicks ass. Deep Space Nine, I don't think you would like The Next Generation that much, Spencer. I think you should definitely watch Deep Space Nine. I should, yeah. I think, I mean, I think Ron Moore, like, worked on that a little bit. So, like, he kind of cut his teeth there. Because Deep Deep Space Nine, it's weird comparing it to other track. I mean, the first thing is, it is the first, like, Trek show to be, like, Here's a serialized ongoing plot, but it's not like a streaming show and that every season has like a couple bottle episodes mixed in as well to balance things out. It does have the the Star Trek problem that like it's not as bad as TNG, but like oh man, that that first season is kind of rough and you can feel them following their roles, but like everything from season 3 onward is like great. Is some of my favorite sci-fi stuff they've they've done. Um it's also very funny because it's it's the the first like Roddenberry was very heavily involved with early TOS and then he he got sick and died and then like TNG and then Deep Space Nine was like all right we're gonna fucking break all of Roddenberry's stupid fucking rules which I mean I think it works you know he did create heavily create Star Trek and in, and influences a lot of the good ideas that I like about it but it is nice to be a, a Star Trek show that's more inflexible because like. He didn't want, like, co-workers to have interpersonal, like, conflicts with each other at all. Like, he, he, he had a very specific vision of a utopian society that, like, made things inflexible. And TNG mostly works all in within those limits pretty well. But Deep Space Nine just completely redefines that. Yeah, I, I, I saw a little bit of playing in the background, and I was never a Trekkie. I got a bad first impression because uh, a friend of mine, when I was, like, 10 years old, played, like, an episode of, like, TOS or whatever, or like the original, I don't know what the... The original series, I will defend, but it is an acquired taste. Yeah, I would probably like it more now, if anything, but at the time I was like, this is not my bag. Like Austin Powers, like remember where he has the book and it's like, penis pumps are my bag, baby. Yeah, it was very funny. I feel bad because the part coming up is all about anime and I also just famously like don't watch anime, so I don't have any opinions about it, but I hope you guys have fun with it. Yeah, baby. One, it's funny... How, like, this invented slash fiction because of how, like, clearly, like, oh, there's there are scenes with, with Spock and Kirk. Like, there are scenes of them together that are just like, this was on 60s television. <laughs> the other thing that's very funny is that, like, you know, you know Star Trek's, like, uh, a society where, you know, humanity has mostly 
devoid of like most of its like racism, unemployment, like most of that, and is, is beyond that. It is very funny that Scotty, or not Scotty, uh, McCoy, the doctor character who's like the third most important guy on the crew, is just constantly allowed to be racist to Spock, calling him a green-blooded freak. <laughs> well, interhuman racism is gone. That doesn't mean interspecies racism is gone. <laughs> That's true. Oh, you know what you did see recently that we could talk a little bit about? What? And it's one of the best fucking things ever. Daikon 4. Oh, that it, man, yeah, I rewatched that a bunch lately. Daikon I, 4 is one of those things that is as good as everyone says it is. It is a, every fucking like Lego movie multiverse homage shit is just pales into a comparison to a bunch of the most talented and influential animation nerds in Japan in the 1980s just just going fuck copyright. We're just going to do whatever we want, and it rules. It's so good. If I got a sight and sound ballot, uh, I would probably strongly consider putting it on there. It, I don't know. It's just, like, breathtakingly beautiful and fun and energetic, and there's just something really magical about it. And it's it definitely helps it has fucking Electric Light Orchestra greasing the wheels with two of their best songs playing on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, no. I like how Time was such a big hit in Japan, uh, you know, do the sort of like retro futuristic aspects. But the part of Daikon 4 that really like elevates it to me, like obviously all the stuff with the bunny girl flying around is cool. It's because he's horny. But the part where Hold On Tight plays and you get like a little collage of them working their asses off to make it, that is the part that really seals the deal for me because it, 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 <laughs> I don't know. It tells you to fucking hold on tight to your dreams and work hard and do this shit because you care about it and you love it. And there's a human cost to making art and it's hard and it takes a lot of energy. But if you'd like muscle through it and have a lot of slave labor handy, like this one did, basically, you can make something transcendent. And that is that is kind of the moral of the Japanese animation industry. Yeah. <laughs> the the other thing that I have watched that is also 80s Anno is Spencer, you should watch Gunbuster. Gunbuster is six episodes. It's Anno's first show. It's really, really good. It's really weird because every episode switches from, like... Because it starts as, like, um, a mecha kind of... The first episode is, like, a mecha 80s sports anime and manga parody. And then every, like, episode, the scale just dramatically increases in more and more until it, like... The ending of the Gunbuster episode 6 is one is maybe the best emotional beat uh, Anno has ever done. It's it's really good. Okay. And again, six episodes. Yeah, no, you got the six episode thing is really selling me, not going to lie. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm doing one of my patented fucking, not, what the hell am I talking about? Just one of my Spencer rants and Spencer opinions here. The rise in critical appreciation and cult appreciation for Evangelion and the movie, which is deserved, I think. Evangelion, the show is great. The movie is even better. I, it has led a lot of people to reassess and reevaluate the rebuilds. And the, the rebuilds, which for a while were considered, at least to my understanding, kind of obnoxious and superfluous. Now, especially with the release of 4.0. They have they have like been reclaimed and they're considered you know major works in Anno's canon. See that's see that's the problem, Spencer. I haven't seen 4.0, so I cannot. I can only I can only judge as someone who has seen the first three rebuilds. I was nice to 4.0 when it came out, but in hindsight, it could be my least favorite of them. Which is funny because all of the rebuilds are flawed in different ways. Um, yeah, I mean. Look, there's good stuff in them. You know, the first one, it's got a amped up version of the sniper showdown from the show. Like, how can you not fuck yeah. with that? How can you not fuck with uh, that? The second one, I remember really liking all of the stuff they added in for Ray's characterization. The I ending like of two is so good, it's not even funny. Like, it is one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking moments I've seen in anything ever. And... The it is like almost the exact opposite and flip side 
of and of Evangelion, where they both kind of fundamentally get at the same idea that human connection is worth it. But if Evangelion presents the the human connection is worth it idea, like the end of Evangelion presents it in this very bleak and just kind of punishing way. 2.22 really like shows it in this like almost overpoweringly beautiful and optimistic way, even as it's destroying the world. It's great. You know what I was going to say? Mari fucking sucks. Oh, I yeah. do that. That's such a Reddit guy opinion, but she fucking does suck, dude. She adds... Yeah. <laughs> nothing to the movie i've seen people try to make very cogent thematic justifications for why ano indulging in his fucking you know hentai past or whatever is this thematic idea of her representing you know shinji's sexuality and the ending she gets you know represents him choosing a normal life or whatever but it cannot help it that she is a fucking blight on that entire series, and she feels like she only exists to pander to the most slovenly fucking horny porn addicts in the fan base. And to sell merchandise to those people. Yeah. But furthermore, the problem with the rebuilds for me is this. Evangelion and End of Evangelion are not thematically subtle at all. And that's not a problem. They are great. NGE, like the ending movie is so bleak and despairing enough, you can lose sight of its, like, I would describe, perhaps controversially, fundamentally life-affirming message. At the same time, every single thing about the rebuilds, to me, feels like an annotation, or an expansion, or, like, the whole thing feels like a thesis paper on Evangelion the show. And everything that was weird and intangible and beguiling and beautiful about the show in the movie like they all just fucking hammer it in every single fucking scene in that those movies is just pummeling you over the fucking head with the basic thematic ideas and the way that it's you know restructuring and reorganizing and providing a rebuttal so many people say oh this is Anno telling his audience they need to grow up and the Anno like disavowing the more cynical and nihilistic elements of the movie and the show but the fact that the fucking show especially the movie had this like kind of angry nihilism makes the optimism in them all the more powerful like you do not get the fucking sheer power of him rejecting fucking universality i straight up just blanked on what the uh what the big you know borg apocalypse is called in those things yeah instrumentality the power yes, of him rejecting instrumentality comes from the fact that he just witnessed all of his friends get blown into bits and that the world he inherits afterwards is a desolate wasteland. You don't get the power. I mean, I'm not even a big fan of the original ending of the show, but part of the reason why it's so powerful is that he chooses this after having to watch the only person he ever cared about turn into a fucking alien and having to strangle him. Like, it is... you. You If you turn it into nice Evangelion, you just... And, over explain and over annotate everything you defeat the whole fucking point of the show the god those movies make me so pissed hey guys just checking in how are we doing we like that whole last bit i didn't realize they made four of them because i didn't watch any of those movies because who cares right but i know there was like a tall lady and people didn't like her or they did or something and it seems like they touched on her a bit there i kind of zoned out i think i might have brain damage but i hope that was a cool conversation for you guys i hope like you got a lot out of that. We're never going to talk about cartoons again outside of this. You know what's a good comparison for what the... It, it doesn't exist, but like what would have been similar to the rebuilds? Cool. Imagine if in the late 90s, instead of making the, the prequel trilogy, George Lucas made the special editions of Star Wars into full new movies. Yes, that is dead on. That is 100%. If he remade... The Star Wars movies with new actors, the same like kind of plot beats, but maybe diverged from them, put all the special edition stuff in there. Yes, that is dead fucking on. That is as dead on as you can get. The special editions are like... In a At least Anno hasn't stopped the series from getting re-released on Blu-ray, so you could just own that. Yeah, no, it, it, Anno has not gone the George Lucas, Wong Kar Wai route of basically trying to snuff the old versions of his films out of existence. I will say though, it was one of the most magical moments in movie Twitter discourse history when the Disney Plus rips of the Star Wars special editions came out and that, like, added bit of, of 
Greedo saying McClunky after getting shot. It's like, oh, George had a time bomb set the whole time is beautiful. That, like, he has been tinkering with these so much that he had, ten years later, one new edit to these fucking movies is kind of funny in hindsight. He won't leave him alone, which is so... It's hilarious, and I, I, I hate him for that. Have you seen the despecialized versions? The hammy despecialized? I have not. I need they to. are wonderful. They actually do feel like watching the movies again for the first time. Um, I, I will say there are, like things i like more about the special and i kind of wish i could like pick and choose the changes that i like the the one the one that sticks out to me that i actually like is the job of the hut scene in episode four or new hope where they have that exchange where at the end han says "Jabba, you're a wonderful human being (laughs) that is a great line that's a line that only harrison ford can deliver harrison ford in his prime before he became a stoner um I think my favorite thing is, like, one, cutting Yub Nub. I appreciate that. Not like in the Ewoks is kind of, like, missing the whole point of, like, what sci-fi was before it got very gritty, I feel like. Sci-fi for, like, 50, 60 years was just, like, what if there was, like, a guy in a spacesuit who just hung out with, like, a weird little freak uh, before it became, like, very... I, I guess, like, before it became overtaken with Star Wars in the same way fantasy was overtaken by Tolkien... You know, like it just used to be like, you just used to be able to come up with like a weird guy and just have him do stuff. Uh, like it just maybe is like, like a couple extra eyes or something. And the Ewoks, I think, are the perfect continuation of that. And then everything just kind of became Star Wars. It's sad. We lost something. I like some of the background changes they make uh, for Empire. And I, and I like that in that one scene where the stormtrooper bumps his head, George Lucas is like, I'm going to put a sound effect on that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, there's bits and pieces that I think, like, work. It's just, like, a matter of principle, almost. You know what's the worst at it? What? Well, there are two of them. I mean, Greedo, like, Han shoots, Greedo shoots first. That's, like, obviously That's bad, but, like, everyone... Both of of the worst changes he made are in, um, are in Return of the Jedi. The first is the expansion he makes to the Twi'lek dance scene in Jabba's palace with the fucking CGI creatures. Even as a kid... Who loved Return of the Jedi. That yeah. shit was so like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, what are we doing? Especially because that scene has someone dying. Yeah, no. Like, and they, just, have- <laughs> they have like the, the more the racial aliens just going, me, my mom, and all. And the other thing that I don't like is that like to, to apparently make the emotional impact of it hit harder. When Darth Vader is mulling, watching the Emperor electrocute his son to death, George takes that moment from silence and has fucking the no, no, yeah, no. and it's just like, come on. It's I think honestly, like the thing is, is that the prequels by that point, Lucas had really switched to his new style, which was this very presentational almost like 1930s acting style and very like commitment to i don't want to call it like high camp but i do think i'm reminded a lot and a lot of my more highbrow friends are going to shoot me in the face for this and for what it's worth this isn't like a value judgment on the prequels one way or the other it's just like a comparison that comes to my head like uh johnny guitar the nicholas ray movie where everything is heightened and expressionistic and everyone delivers their lines in this very dramatic style. And, uh, you know, that was why a lot of the prequels kind of got pilloried at the time was, you know, he had had all the actors and you can like that in the prequels, but the special editions was really him trying to put this new style on top of the thing he already, already made because the star Wars movies, especially like the first two are so fucking seventies. Like you've got Harrison Ford mouthing off like a smart ass. You've got it, it's it's you've got this kind of like rugged. Leia has a fucking coke fingernail. Yeah, she's like ru- like it's got this rugged, you know, like kind of you no. Know, despite you know the whole light and dark thing, like there's this still this very rugged '70s attitude to it. Like Harrison Ford is Han Solo. He's a classic fucking '70s movie anti-hero, and uh, you know the whole Greedo shoots first shit or whatever. Like that's him trying to put the more mythic style of the prequels into the special, like into the originals. 
and kind of like unify the text and it's just a fucking shit show it's it's a total disaster um well, we've been talking for a little over an hour do you have any closing thoughts you want to make i don't know if this episode was good but i had a lot of fun recording it it wasn't uh, i'm i'm optimistic this episode was good as hell nope this episode was okay. straight fire. There's some straight heat on the track. No, this was a very fun little discussion. If you if you hate this, you know, shut the fuck up. I don't respect you. If you like this, shower me with praise and discord. Say that you love this and you want to hear more of this bullshit. So, you know, it's, it's totally on you. But I think that, if nothing else, I think this will placate some of our more uh, hog-like fans who want us to talk about cartoons and bullshit and do serious analysis. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to the Spencer and Andy show. Um, this is going to be a permanent thing now that uh, Ty is dead. And uh, yeah, catch you all next time where uh, Andy and I will talk about the same five topics every single episode. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> well, we'll talk, we're going to talk about old Hollywood and Star Wars and fantasy and nerd fiction and that's the only thing we're ever going to talk about for the same episodes and then we'll talk about a song of ice and fire and ty will angrily rise from the grave yeah so look forward to that all right thank you all for listening bye-bye bye-bye bye-bye